Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we always take a few moments to make sure that we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, and ready to study the Word. On the hymn, the first hymn that we sang this morning, which was not in my copy of the bulletin, uh, what was that first hymn we sang? What? Come Thou Font by uh, Robert Robinson. Uh, wrote that in the third verse. It says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave, the Lord I love. Those words were somewhat uh, of a foreshadowing of his life because he was a young man when he wrote that hymn, and then he spent uh, several years or several decades of his life where he rejected the Lord, and he led a rather uh, prodigal life. And then he returned back to the Lord many, many years later as a result of an encounter with a young woman on a carriage ride. Of course, carriage back in those days was comparable to a cab ride today. So this woman got in the uh, carriage with him, and she recognized his name and volunteered the information of how much she appreciated that hymn that he had written. Obviously, he had been going through a time of spiritual turmoil because he broke down and wept, recognizing uh, how far he had drifted away from the Lord. And at that time, he used the principle of 1 John 1, nine to regain, recover forgiveness of sins and recover the filling of the Holy Spirit and went on to... Uh, recover his spiritual growth and restore to spiritual maturity. So we see that principle of using 1 John 1, 9 illustrated in numerous different places and hymns and scripture references. So we always have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary to make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, and ready to study the Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity and privilege to gather together today to fellowship around the teaching of your word. Father, we thank you that your word is absolute truth. Jesus said, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. And it is through the means of your word, the study of your word, 
the inculcation of the doctrines contained therein, the application of those doctrines whereby the believer is brought to spiritual maturity under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to sit, to study, to learn your word, a privilege that we take too often for granted in this country and a privilege that is uh, so unique to this age and time. There is so much available to the everyday believer during this time that it is easy to forget what a privilege this is historically and how rare it has been. And even today there are many millions of believers throughout this world who do not have access to quality Bible teaching. Father, we thank you for this privilege. We thank you for this nation we live in, for the freedoms we have. We continue to pray for our president. We pray for military and political leaders. We pray that you would guide and direct them. We pray that you would watch over our troops in Iraq. We pray that they might be able to discover the information they need in order to uh, thoroughly and completely defeat this enemy. May we at home not forget that we are in a war. This is more than a war that involves physical troops, but this is a manifestation of an even greater cosmic conflict between Satan, the forces of darkness, and you. Father, we pray that as believers we might be involved in this at a spiritual level through our own uh, learning and application of Bible doctrine that we might continue to advance to spiritual maturity. We pray that you would continue to protect this nation, this nation that provides a legal framework for the ongoing teaching of your word, that provides a freedom to send out missionaries. Hundreds of thousands of missionaries throughout the world have come from this nation to radically change the nature of this world. And, Father, this nation also stands in support of Israel. We pray that you would continue to protect this nation for these reasons, to keep us from being harmed by our enemies, and that we may continue to, uh, as a people, be able to teach your word and communicate truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Western civilization continues its uh, slide slouching toward Gomorrah. The latest example of this came across my desk this last week. It's a Canadian bill, Bill C-250. And according to this bill, uh, the Canadians are going to add sexual orientation to the list of identifiable minorities that are protected by law from hate speech and, quote, hate propaganda. That means that to quote certain passages in Scripture, such as Leviticus 8.22, passages in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and other passages in Scripture would be forbidden by law in Canada, and that would be classified as hate speech. So you think that this is just something that may affect uh, Canada, but as goes our neighbors to the north, so often we follow. This is the drift, this is the trend of the age in which we live. And I am afraid that just as we saw certain trends going on in uh, in feminism, certain trends that were going on in the New Age movement and in the 60s generation back in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, we can see the same trends in the uh, 
homosexual rights movement that seek to reclassify marriage as a loving relationship between two adults, which means that that sexual uh, orientation is uh, not an issue and it's not no longer going to be classified as a union between a male and a female, which is a biblical concept. So we are in for a major battle. And this is the kind of thing that I'll refer to a little bit in the second hour of how Christians can be involved and should be involved for social change, part of their function of being salt and light. But this morning our study in the first hour is back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 on the doctrine of spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and spiritual gifts. We saw last time that Paul introduces this subject in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 1. Now concerning spiritual, literally the spirituals, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. And we saw that he changes his subject here with the Greek word peridae, which introduces a new topic. And it seems that the Apostle Paul is either dealing with specific issues or questions that have been uh, brought to him uh, from the church in Corinth, and he sort of clicks off each one of these questions as he goes through his epistle. He uses the word pneumaticone for spiritual here, which is a word that has a generic concept of simply that which pertains to the spirit or that which pertains to spiritual life. In verse 4, he introduces the word charismatone, and it is that word from the word charismata that introduces the idea of being a grace gift. So the two concepts have been put together, spiritual and gift, in order to give us the classification of spiritual uh, gift. The word charisma is one of those words, and as we go through this, we're going to see that specifically in this chapter, we're going to run into certain technical terminology that has been picked up and abused, and one of the ways Satan attacks is through taking sound biblical terminology and then giving it a new meaning. And the word charisma, which is a perfectly good Christian word, perfectly good biblical word, has been co-opted by the charismatic movement to refer to something that is actually forbidden in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, as we shall see. Now, he addresses believers in this particular passage, so we're going to talk about what the Bible has provided for believers. And we stopped last time at the very beginning of the doctrine of spiritual gifts, so this time we will take up and review the first two points and then continue. This is simply an introduction to the concept of spiritual gifts so we can orient our thinking before we get into the details of the chapter. So we're going to start off with the definition of terms. What is a spiritual gift? Spiritual gift is classified as a talent, ability, or an aptitude sovereignly bestowed on every believer in the church age by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation for performing a particular service in and for the body of Christ. Now I want to note a couple of things here. We call it a talent or an ability or an aptitude. Those are not three different things. Those are just three synonyms used to describe this this thing that is given. It's a special ability that is designed, as we'll see, for the edification of the church. It is not a self-oriented thing. 
and this is something that has happened today, is that people think of spiritual gifts as something that God's given me for me. But this is something that God has given every believer at the instant of salvation for your ministry to other believers in the context of a local church ministry. And that is something that is important. Believers are not supposed to be out there, or they're not envisioned as being out there operating in isolation. Now, that happens, and and unfortunately, we live in a time today when that happens a lot. And in some times, there are believers who just don't have the opportunity to be involved in a local church, either because they're geographically isolated or because they are doctrinally isolated. It's becoming more and more difficult to find a church where the Word of God is taught clearly and precisely where grace is honored, where there's a basic understanding of the Word and there's not a distortion of the Word. And that can involve distortion from the way in which worship is conducted. I hear from people who say, well, I found a church and I could almost put up with it, but they start off with 45 minutes of of emotional singing and I just can't quite handle that. And that is a problem. And what it, it's more than just a problem of music. It is frequently a problem of having bought into a certain philosophy of ministry and a philosophy of music in that local church that betrays a poor theology and doctrinal foundation. So that is more the symptom of the problem than it is a problem. But spiritual gifts are designed for the edification of the body. So it's a talent, ability, or aptitude sovereignly bestowed on every believer in the church age by the Holy Spirit. So it is God the Holy Spirit who bestows these gifts. Every believer has one. Spiritual gifts are restricted to the church age. As we'll see, there were not spiritual gifts before the church age. There will not be spiritual gifts after the church age. They are unique to this time in history. And that these spiritual gifts are not, because they're bestowed by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, they are not to be confused with natural talents, abilities, or aptitudes. Everybody has has certain uh, natural talents, abilities, or aptitudes. Everybody has certain things that they can do well and some things they can't do well. They have an orientation to uh, certain things. Some people... Uh, are just naturally oriented to help other people. And if that is joined with a spiritual gift of helps, then you have someone who can, uh, who really is going to function well in that particular area. Uh, in the same way, if you have this, uh, someone given the gift of pastor teacher, if they have a natural gift to teaching, and that's their personality, and then on top of that, God gives them the gift of uh, spiritual gift of teaching, then that person is going to be even more effective, it may seem, uh, in their teaching, or more dynamic, perhaps. But it is the gift of the teaching, it's the gift of helps, it's the gift of mercy that has spiritual efficacy. It is not the natural part. Of that, And so often people will confuse someone who has a natural ability to teach with someone who ought to be teaching the Word. And that, as we'll see when we get into an understanding of the gift, is a problem because these gifts are designed for the edification of the body and they are enhanced, uh, spirit-given, and 
uh, abilities that are function at their optimum under the filling of the Holy Spirit. So anyway, that is our opening definition. And these gifts are given at the moment of salvation, so every believer has one, at least one, and they are to, for performing a particular service in and for the body of Christ. These gifts are not given in relation to any human merit, ability, or talent, and they will become operationally effective as a believer matures. One of the things that I have noted as I've gone through these chapters that talk about spiritual gifts, and there's only three that identify the spiritual gifts. There's a, the most extensive list is here in 1 Corinthians 12. There's another list in Romans 12, and there's a list in Ephesians 4, 8 through 11. But nowhere do you find an injunction in the, in the Scripture to find and discover your spiritual gift. Now, a lot of people think that. A lot of churches teach that. But the Bible never says that. And that is because as you grow up spiritually, which is where the priority is, as you mature spiritually, these areas of giftedness will normally display themselves. So the issue isn't identifying your spiritual gift. The issue is spiritual growth, except in our usual uh, backward way of doing things in 20th century or 21st century American evangelicalism, what happens in most churches is they have a new members class and they shuffle everybody into the new members class. And one of the first things they teach them is uh, three or four classes on how to discover your spiritual gift. And they'll cover the doctrinal statement of the church in about one class, maybe two. And their priority is all on me, 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 what is my spiritual gift and how can I use my spiritual gift. But it's more of a self-orientation than it is a body orientation, and it's divorced from spiritual growth. And the issue in the New Testament is the believer advancing to spiritual maturity so that he can effectively operate in the body of Christ as opposed to finding out what your spiritual gift is. Trust me, you don't ever need to know what your spiritual gift is, and if you reach spiritual maturity, you will be operating at maximum efficiency in the area of your spiritual gift. It will be the normal uh, operation and the normal overflow of your spiritual advance. Now, the Bible, as we pointed out last time, uses three different terms in talking about spiritual gifts. The first is the one we saw in 1 Corinthians 12, 1, pneumatic cone, which emphasizes the source and nature of the gift, that it relates to the spiritual life of the believer and his relationship to the Holy Spirit. That word pneumaticone is a general term. It's used in two or three different contexts. And it's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, in relationship to the spiritual believer versus the Sukikos believer. And in that context, it refers to someone who's in right relationship to the Holy Spirit because he's saved. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, it's used in contrast to the carnal believer. And there it relates to a more specific idea of the believer who is walking by the Spirit as opposed to the believer who is not walking by the Spirit, but walking like a mere man, 1 Corinthians 3:13. So this term is used in a couple of other places. It's an adverb that simply describes 
the spiritual life of the believer, specifically in relationship to the Holy Spirit. Charisma, the second word, emphasizes the grace nature of the gifts. It is the root word here, charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, is the Greek word for grace, the word for gift. So spiritual gifts are freely given by God. That means that the idea of grace means it's not based on human merit, human ability. You don't talk God into it. You don't do anything to get it. In some churches they talk about tarrying, picking that word up from the old King James, or waiting upon God to get your gift, praying for certain gifts. This is all wrong. The instant you were saved, you got a spiritual gift. You don't get any more after you're saved. It is... Uh, an issue of the God, the Holy Spirit, determining where you fit on the team. And then the third word that is used is the word marismas, translated gifts in Hebrews 2.4. Hebrews 2.4 reads, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Actually, the word there translated gifts of the Spirit is our word merismas, which means a division, a separation, a distribution, or apportionment. So that means that Hebrews 2.4 should be translated distributions of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. And what we will see is that all of the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are involved in the distribution of spiritual gifts. However, it is primarily operational under the Holy Spirit. The Father is involved, the Son is involved, but it is the Holy Spirit who is the one who has the direct involvement, a direct responsibility there. Point number three. Point number three. Spiritual gifts are unique to the church age. Spiritual gifts are unique to the church age. Now, the church age began 50 days after the crucifixion on the day of Pentecost when God the Holy Spirit descended to the earth, and that began the church age. The church age ends with the rapture of the church, a term that refers to the fact that the church will be caught up to be with the Lord in the air. It is the, the word rapture comes from the Latin translation of the Greek word harpazo, which is used there in 1 Thessalonians 4, um, 11-15 for the rapture. And some people will say, well, rapture is a term that's not used in the Bible. Well, that's right, we didn't call it being harpazoed, we took the Latin term and said it was being raptured, but it is a biblical term nevertheless. Now, when you look at history, before the cross, you had the age of the Messiah when Christ is on the earth, prior to that, we had the age of Israel, and prior to that, we had the age of the Gentiles. Now, during both of these times, you had people who had special abilities known as prophets. You also had prophets perform miracles, such as the miracles performed by Elijah when he brought the widow's son back to life, other miracles that were performed by Moses, miracles that were performed by Elisha. 
but these are never classified as gifts. They're never, ever classified as gifts. Now, one of the reasons that I'm making this point is because when we get into 1 Corinthians 13, 8-13, and we make the point that the spiritual gifts of prophecy and knowledge will cease, some people come back and they say, well, what do you do? With Joel 2, which talks about the fact that in the uh, millennial kingdom, your uh, young men will dream dreams, your old men will see visions, and your, your daughters will prophesy. Well, that is in an Old Testament economy. That is not a spiritual gift. In the New Testament, you have a uniquely operating gift of prophecy, which, though it functioned like the Old Testament gift of prophecy, I mean the Old Testament operation of prophecy, the spiritual gift here is one that is given by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ for a specific purpose. So even though there is similarity of operation, what you have in these other dispensations is not a spiritual gift per se. So let's go back to our point. Third point, spiritual gifts are unique to the church age. No spiritual gifts were given prior to the day of Pentecost, and no spiritual gifts are given after the rapture of the church. Does that mean that there are no miracles before the day of Pentecost? No. Neither does it mean there are no miracles after the rapture. But there is no spiritual gift per se, because that is something that is related to the body of Christ. There was no body of Christ before the uh, day of Pentecost. There is no body of Christ in terms of a corporate body of Christ after the rapture. So spiritual gifts are unique operation for the body of Christ, for the church, during the church age. Point number four, spiritual gifts are the direct result of the ascension of Christ. Now, I don't think I need to belabor this point because we spent about six weeks studying the ascension and session of Christ in order to show that the spiritual gifts were distributed as a result of Christ's ascension to heaven. Once he ascended to heaven and was seated at the right hand of God the Father, he said in John 16:7 that he could send the Holy Spirit. And part of the sending of the Holy Spirit, including the giving of gifts to believers, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 8 through 11. So spiritual gifts are the direct result of the ascension of Christ, his current session in heaven, and the purposes of God in the present church age in preparing a bride for the Lord Jesus Christ and a people to rule and reign with him in the millennial kingdom. That is the point. Spiritual gifts are the direct result of the ascension of Christ, his current session, and the purposes of God in the present church age. Remember, he is preparing you and me to rule and reign with him in the future. So it operates in the present church age in preparing a bride for the Lord Jesus Christ and a people to rule and reign with him. We come back with the Lord at the second advent as his bride. The bridal feast, the bridal supper is in heaven at the end of the tribulation. And then we return with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we rule and reign with him in the millennial kingdom. 
So point number four, the giving and operation of spiritual gifts is related to the ascension of Christ and specifically what he is doing now in human history during this time of the session of Christ. Now point number five, as with most activities, what we see is that all three members of the Trinity are involved. Remember, all three members of the Trinity were involved in creation. God the Father is portrayed as the architect or the planner of creation. Jesus Christ is the contractor on the site who actually does the creating work, and he uses the Holy Spirit to do it. We see the Holy Spirit moving on the face of the earth in Genesis 1, verse 2. So just as in in, in every other facet of life, all three members of the Trinity are involved. In Hebrews 2.4, we're told that that, um, God's the author of the plan of salvation. God the Son uh, carries that out. It was his strategic victory on the cross that uh, brought that to pass in Ephesians 4.7. And then God the Holy Spirit is the immediate, immediate source of salvation in terms of regeneration applied to each believer. So all three members are involved in salvation. The same is true in uh, in relationship to spiritual gifts. In fact, if you have your Bible open to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you look down, just skip ahead a little bit to verses, verses 4, 5, and 6, we see a very strong Trinitarian affirmation here. There we read there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord, referring to the second person of the Trinity. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God, in reference to God the Father, who works all in all. So verses 4, 5, and 6 are going to tie the spiritual gifts to all three members of the Trinity. Along with that, we see that In verse 11, it is one and the same Spirit who works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So we see that the member of the Trinity who has the primary responsibility here is God the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. So all three members of the Trinity are involved in the giving of spiritual gifts. That was point number five. And then point number six Spiritual gifts are not earned or deserved. Spiritual gifts are not earned or deserved. And the tremendous confusion that has existed about spiritual gifts since the Pentecostal charismatic movement came on the scene at the turn of the 20th century, there's been a lot of confusion. The idea that you don't get spiritual gifts until you have a second experience of grace after salvation. See, in classic Pentecostalism, and we'll get into this a little more when we get into the tongues issue later in chapter 13. Classic Pentecostalism grew out of Methodism. Not that Methodists were Pentecostal, I'm not saying that. But in Methodism, you had the idea develop in the middle of the 19th century that there were two works of grace. One at salvation, and one that came after salvation as a work that of dedication that elevated the believer to a state of perfection. 
Perfectionism was a doctrine that went back to, to the founder of Methodism, John Wesley. Now, what happened is you had a group that came along called Holiness People. See, there's another example of taking good, a good, sound, biblical word and distorting it. And in Holiness, they taught this idea that there are two stages, and if you want to be, live a fully sanctified life then you have to have this second work of grace. And that second work of grace began to be identified with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now that's going to come into play in verse 13 of this chapter. So we will go into a study of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit then came to be linked with physical evidence or visible evidence of speaking in tongues. This occurred towards the end of the 1800s, and then on New Year's Eve in 1901, a woman by the name of Agnes Osman, who was a student at Bethel Bible Institute, a small institute in Topeka, Kansas, where the where the um, uh, teacher there, a man who had founded that that school, taught that that you could speak in tongues, and she started <clears throat> rattling off in an ecstatic utterance about midnight in a prayer meeting, and so that was the beginning of the modern Pentecostal movement. But it has this, this idea that there are two stages, and that somehow to get the gift, you have to tarry. Remember, Jesus told the disciples in Acts 1 that they needed to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the old King James word for that was tarry. And so what you'll find in a lot of classic Pentecostal and charismatic meetings is that they will use that word tarry. You need to tarry. Of course, they never explain it, but you need to tarry. You need to wait. Usually it involves some sort of emotional breast beating and uh, crying upon the Lord to give you the gift. But see, this runs counter to the whole principle of gifts, that they're sovereignly distributed at the gift instant of salvation, and they're not related to anything you do. They are freely given. The gift itself is not developed or learned. The gift itself is not developed or learned. It doesn't increase. You don't get more of it. You don't get a better quality of it. But its use or development may be may be learned. For example, you may have the gift of pastor-teacher. That does not mean that you can automatically sit down and start understanding and teaching the Word. You have to have training. You have to be taught. You need to go to Bible college or seminary, and you have to study the original languages. You need to spend two or three years minimum in Greek and Hebrew. You need to study theology. You need to study systematic theology. You should have some sort of background in philosophy, logic, history. All of that provides you with the framework to be better able to study the Word. In the, going through the academic disciplines in a, uh, in a college, university, seminary setting teaches you how to think critically. So you, you develop the use of that gift but the gift itself is not developed. It's interesting that anybody I've ever met that had the gift of pastor-teacher, all they had to do was get up and teach a Sunday school class, and it was sort of, this isn't a great illustration for a Christian, but it was just sort of like a junkie getting a shot of heroin. 
I mean, I've never met anybody who had the gift of pastor teacher who after, I mean, they might have been 15 or 16 years old and not know a whole lot, not be able to teach their way out of a wet paper bag, but they just got up in front of a group and started teaching the word to the best of their ability. And, you know, it was like something went off inside their head and they knew that this was exactly what they had to do. And it's never in doubt, although we all, every pastor I know, has struggled at times with whether or not they sh- should go to seminary, whether or not they should go- they really had the gift. And the best advice I ever heard or read was, if you can do anything else in life, go do it. Because if you go do something else and you just can't live unless you're pastoring, unless you're teaching the Word, then you're going to know that you have the gift of pastor-teacher, not just the ability to teach. See, some people have a gift of teaching which is distinct from the gift of pastor-teacher. That involves leadership through the teaching of the Word. And not everyone has that. There are many seminary professors who are great teachers, great instructors. They teach Greek. They teach exegesis. They teach Hebrew, church history, theology. But they're not really pastors, per se. They cannot function leading a local congregation. However, they do great jobs teaching. Same thing can happen in a local church. You can have men in the local church. Notice I emphasize men because women do not have the gift of pastor-teacher, and women are not supposed to teach men. First Timothy chapter 2, verses uh, uh, 11 to 15. But a, uh, you can have men in a local congregation who have the gift of teaching, but they don't have the gift of pastor-teacher. And every now and then you have some uh, person who thinks he has the gift of pastor-teacher and tries to get involved in some kind of a, an authority contest with the pastor. And that shows you're not ready to use your gift because there's no humility there. To utilize any spiritual gift well, there has to be humility from grace orientation. And grace orientation begins by realizing that the gift itself is not earned or deserved. It is freely given. It doesn't make me special because I have the gift of pastor-teacher. I had nothing to do with that. That's something that the Lord gave me. But it's my responsibility to utilize it, to perfect it, to use it to the best of my ability under the operation of my own responsibility. And that's the way it is for every individual believer in whatever gift they might have. They should develop, they should hone their use, they should mature in their use of their particular gifts. Now, point number seven, we have to recognize that there are two categories of spiritual gifts. There are two categories of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. There are permanent gifts and there are temporary gifts. Permanent gifts and temporary gifts. In the previous chart that I put up on the overhead and outlining the church age, the church age is actually subdivided into two sub-dispensations or two two smaller sections. The first is the apostolic period. Also, we could call that the pre-canon period. 
This was a period that went from roughly 33 to 95 A.D. It was a period before the New Testament was completed, that time period when the uh, body of Christ was in its infancy because they didn't have a sufficient or completed canon. But by the time the Apostle John finished the book of Revelation, the canon was complete. And so then you enter into the post-apostolic period and the post-canon period where we now have a completed canon of Scripture. The term canon means a rule. It is not a canon, C-A-N-N-O-N. It is a canon, C-A-N-O-N, which means a rule or a standard. And so we live in the post-apostolic period. Now, during the uh, apostolic period, you had certain temporary gifts operational, and some of these gifts involved giving revelation because you didn't have a completed canon yet. But once that canon was complete, then the temporary gifts no longer had a purpose. So we have permanent and temporary gifts. And temporary gifts are those gifts that were distributed to certain apostles and disciples uh, to give them credentials during the time before the canon of Scripture was completed in approximately 95 A.D., So temporary gifts were given to certain apostles and disciples to give them, provide them with certain credentials. When they came into a new area, nobody knew who they were. Nobody had any idea whether they'd be teaching the truth or not. What they did was they would uh, perform a miracle, and that would immediately get everybody's attention, and that miracle would be so radically different from the pseudo-miracles practiced by the religious uh, operators in the area that it immediately set them apart. So these these temporary gifts were designed to give them uh, credentials. Now there are two types of temporary gifts. The first category of temporary gift were revelatory gifts. Revelatory gifts. And these were given, were involved in providing special revelation from God. The revelatory gifts were oriented towards providing special revelation from God. Remember, this is the early stage of the church when you don't have a completed canon. Nobody had all the information available to them yet about living the spiritual life of the church age. You're in a new dispensation. Things are different. So since you would have a local congregation in some place like Derby or Lystra or out on Cyprus, and they would perhaps have one epistle from Paul, and that's it. Let's say it's 45 A.D. You would have somebody in the congregation that had the gift of the word of wisdom or word of knowledge, and they would be able to teach or inform that congregation relative to uh, church-age truth. So you had revelatory gifts, and these would involve uh, prophecy, word of wisdom, and word of knowledge. Those were your revelatory gifts. Then you had another classification of temporary gifts called sign gifts. Uh, Sign gifts. And sign gifts were used to provide credentials for the user. Sign gifts provided credentials for the apostle or disciple or uh, missionary. 
And this would uh, indicate that they were qualified to communicate the truth that they were communicating. This would include the gift of healing, or the gift of miracles, and these were specifically stated as authenticating the apostolic witness in 2 Corinthians 12.12. They're called signs of the apostles, and also in Hebrews 2, verse 4. So you have temporary gifts subdivided into two classifications, revelatory gifts and sign gifts. Tongues is a sign gift related to God's announcement of judgment on Israel, something we won't get to until we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now that brings us to point 8. The purpose for the permanent spiritual gifts is mutual ministry and service in the body of Christ. Mutual ministry. We are told to do these things for one another. Another thing that we should note while we talk about the fact that therefore mutual ministry is that many of these gifts, many of these spiritual gifts are to also be areas of service for every believer. For example, if you do not have the gift of evangelism, that does not excuse you from witnessing. Every believer is expected to witness. But some believers are going to have a spiritually enhanced ability to witness to people. And if you've ever been around someone who has the gift of evangelism, it is a remarkable thing to watch. I have the privilege to have a couple of friends that have this gift, and it's always quite convicting because they can't even buy gas at the local gas station without witnessing to the the person at the cash register. Every time they talk to anybody, they, they just can't wait to turn the conversation to giving the gospel. And it is uh, people with that gift who are... Uh, given to the body of Christ, and part of their function is to train the rest of us in how to be effective witnesses. That's what Ephesians 4 says, that there are four gifts that were given to the church so to equip the saints for ministry. The gift of evangelism isn't given simply to evangelize, but he is given to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So I have a friend of mine that has been up here to visit before, and he's gone on a couple of uh, trips. He's not a seminary-trained individual at all, but he has the gift of evangelism, and I have learned a lot just from watching him as he witnesses to people, and uh, I hope to have him come up one of these times when I'm uh, out of town or not here on a, on a uh, Wednesday night, and he's going to uh, do some evangelism training. And it's something we all need to be prodded in every now and then. So that's a function of these spiritual gifts, mutual ministry and service. Another example is uh, the gift of giving. Now, you may not have the gift of giving, but that doesn't excuse you from financially supporting your local church ministry or other ministries. Giving is something that is part of the ambassadorship of every believer and is part of our responsibility. But some people just have an incredible gift in giving. And I find that some of these people are given the ability by God to make money. And so there are some people who are successful financially and part of the reason they are successful financially is so that they have the resources to give to the support 
of missionaries and churches and uh, other uh, operations and just to help other believers out, to help other believers out financially. And once again, I'm always encouraged and excited when I see somebody functioning in the gift of giving. And many people have the gift of giving are not very well off financially, and yet they make it a point to give incredible percentages of their income to the support of local church ministries and missions. In fact, studies have shown that the uh, majority of support that Financial support that sustains most ministries comes from people who give rather small donations. They are not success, uh, they, they do not become, uh, supported, or the majority of their support is not on the back of people who have a lot of money. In fact, the sad thing is, too often studies show that the wealthier a believer becomes, the less he's going to give. And that's a sad fact because one of the reasons God makes a person financially successful is so that they will utilize that, that resource to support the body of Christ. And that is part of the test of affluence, the test of prosperity, is to see whether or not you're going to look at the wealth that God gives you in such a way that you would use it to further uh, support the body of Christ financially, both the local church uh, various other ministries and missions ministries. So that's all part of the point, number eight, that the purpose for the permanent spiritual gift is mutual ministry and service in the body of Christ. And we always have to make the caveat that spiritual gifts are not the means of spiritual growth or church growth. Spiritual gifts are never talked about in the Bible as the means of spiritual growth or church growth. People get this backwards. Find your spiritual gift, start using it, and you'll grow spiritually. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says grow spiritually, and eventually you'll start functioning in the realm of your spiritual gift. Just as you grew up and matured, and as you were educated, and as you learned that there were some things you could do well and other things you could not do well, as you matured, your natural talents and abilities became manifested. But if you didn't grow up, if you still operated and lived as if you were six years old, your natural abilities and talents would not be obvious. So the, your talents and your gifts your, in a natural realm become obvious as you mature. The same is true about spiritual gifts. Now point number nine. It's not necessary to identify your spiritual gift in order to use it. It's not necessary to identify your spiritual gift in order to use it. This runs completely contrary to what is popularly taught today, and that is the idea that you need to know what your spiritual gift is or you just won't ever use it. But you see, there are some spiritual gifts such as the gift of administration, the gift of service, sometimes called, translated the gift of helps, the gift of mercy, uh, the gift of giving. Some of these spiritual gifts may be used in many, many different ways. In fact, a person can have more than one spiritual gift, and, you, and, and as we'll see when we go through the passage, gifts are given in different proportions. So you may have one person on this side of the church that has the gift of service, 
and the gift of mercy. And he has a 20% level gift of mercy and an 80% level gift of service. And you blend those together with his talents and abilities, and that's going to manifest one way. And you look over on the other side of the church, and you have somebody, he has the gift of administration and the gift of, uh, of, of service. And that's he's got that in a different proportion, and that's going to manifest a different way. So don't get caught up in certain kinds of preconceived notions as to what these gifts are or how they operate. Each is a little different. What happens is as you mature as a believer and you seek opportunities to serve the body of Christ, which is what happens as you mature, then you will naturally gravitate to function in your area of spiritual giftedness. Now, you may be in a small congregation like Preston City Bible Church where you may not be get, have a spiritual gift of teaching. You have a spiritual gift of service. That means you have a tendency to want to help people. And what will happen is you'll hear an announcement, as occasionally happens around here, that we have a need for someone to teach downstairs. So you may not have the gift of teaching, but you, as a function of your spiritual gift of service, will go downstairs and take over a Sunday school class or prep school class in order to uh, help the church out. That you may not have the gift of teaching, but that doesn't excuse you from not operating in a gift of service. Now, you may not have the gift of service or the gift of teaching. You're still not excused. <laughs> because as a believer in the local body of Christ, our responsibility is to, to serve the body of Christ, to serve one another, to teach one another, to admonish one another, to pray for one another, to love one another, to help one another. So just because you're not gifted in an area is not an excuse for not trying to help or serve in that particular area. So you don't have to identify your spiritual gift in order to use it, but as you mature... It will manifest itself. Now, you have to remember that, uh, I always have another warning in here, is that remember there's a difference between spiritual gifts and natural gifts. Music, singing, bookkeeping, accounting are not spiritual gifts. So you may have a gift of service, you may have the gift of, of helps or administration, and in a, and you may have a natural ability with numbers, or you may have a natural ability to do any number of things, and it is the merger of your natural abilities and talents with this spiritual gift of administration, service, mercy, whatever, that allows you to function in a particular way. Somebody uh, who sings or plays the piano will do so. They may have the gift of service, and they just merge their musical talent or ability with that spiritual gift of helps or service. The issue is not what's your spiritual gift. The issue is how can I serve the local body of Christ, and the primary issue is how do I grow to spiritual maturity. As you grow to spiritual maturity, you will begin to recognize your responsibility in a local church that you have a responsibility as a member of the body of Christ to minister in that, to serve in some capacity. Some of those will be overt. Some of them won't be overt. Some of them may be the way you function is completely unseen, and you have you pray, 
And that's how you serve that local body of Christ. And there are many people who've had incredible ministries in their local church, completely unknown and unseen because of their prayer life. Others may have the gift of giving. No one knows what they give or how much they give, and yet that's how they serve the body of Christ. But it's only through maturity that that gift becomes uh, more and more effective. Point number 10. Reminder, there's a distinction between natural talents and abilities and spiritual gifts, and I've said enough about that to where you ought to understand that, but every year I run into some people, some group, that's completely confused on this. Natural talents and abilities, such as music, are not spiritual gifts. Point number 11, spiritual gifts have their spiritual efficacy only when operating under the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you have the gift of giving and you give, that money is still going to be used by the Lord. But it has no spiritual value in your own life. In other words, it's human good, not divine good. It's not rewardable. It's wood, hay, and straw, and it's not gold, silver, or precious stones. So for spiritual gifts to have spiritual efficacy and value, you need to make sure you're operating under the filling of the Holy Spirit. Point number 12. The body of Christ is like a team. We have to keep this team concept in mind. There are many different positions. Each requires different abilities. Some of those abilities are more dramatic and some and more overt than others. Others operate behind the scene, but every gift is important. That's what we'll see in this study of 1 Corinthians 12. Every gift is important. Everybody has a spiritual gift. And your spiritual gift is important to the overall operation of the body of Christ. Point number uh, 13. I've added two points since last week. Point number 13. The purpose for the spiritual gift was to edify the body of Christ. The purpose for the spiritual gifts was to edify the body. Though a person may receive some measure of edification from his own gift... That is not the purpose. For example, as a pastor, I receive a tremendous amount of spiritual edification and growth as a result of my own study of the Word. I get it before you do. But that's not the purpose of the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher. If I sit down there in my study and I study the Word for my own spiritual growth and it ends there, then it is a misuse and abuse of the spiritual gift. I'm given the gift of pastor-teacher not for what it can do for me, but for what it can do for other members in the body of Christ. And this will become very important when we come to study uh, the gift of tongues and what's been done with the gift of tongues in the modern Pentecostal charismatic movement. The gift of tongues, just to give you a, a foreshadowing, is not for personal edification that violates the whole definition of spiritual gifts given in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Therefore, tongues can't be a prayer language because that's personal edification. It can't be for personal devotions. It can't be for 99% of the reasons that people utilize the gift or claim the gift today. See, in the early years of the 20th century when they discovered that, that Agnes Osmond didn't speak some Chinese dialect, they had to justify the fact that it wasn't a real language. See, up to that point, they expected that the res- restoration of the gift of tongues 
would be for missionary purposes. And they understood that it would be languages. But when it turned out that it wasn't, and you couldn't use it in missions, well, they had to justify it somehow. So they said, ah, the reason that we have the gift is for personal edification, prayer language, and devotion. But the purpose of a spiritual gift completely negates that as a purpose for the spiritual gift. You might be edified, you might edify yourself when you use your spiritual gift. But that's not the purpose. That's simply a secondary byproduct. And when that becomes the purpose, then the gift is used, being used in a carnal manner. And finally, in terms of our introduction and orientation, point number 14, a person may have more than one gift, and will have those gift in gifts in different proportions. So if you think about the spiritual gifts in the Bible as sort of uh, like primary colors, they can be mixed and mingled in many different ways, and which will display themselves differently from one person to another. Then you take those spiritual gifts and abilities along with their natural talents and abilities and each individual's personality, both its, both in terms of its positive aspects and the negative aspects of the trends of the sin nature, and you realize that no two people with certain gifts are going to display those gifts in the same way, which emphasizes individual responsibility. You've been given this tremendous resource for the benefit of the body of Christ, and it's your responsibility to, first of all, grow to spiritual maturity so that you can become an effective member on the team. Now, this, as I pointed out, the concept of spiritual gifts has, is today a source of tremendous division and confusion. But that's nothing new. It's been the source of division and confusion at least since the time Paul first explained spiritual gifts to the Corinthians, and they got it all confused, and he had to straighten them out with this epistle. So we will continue our study next time and hopefully shed more more light than confusion on the doctrine of spiritual gifts with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you for the clarity of your revelation to us. We thank you for the fact that you have so constructed the body of Christ that each person has a vital role to play and is significant in the overall function of each local church and the universal body of Christ. Father, we pray that we might recognize that the key issue, though, is not what is our spiritual gift, but growing to spiritual maturity. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone anyone here this morning that's unsure of their eternal salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Salvation is only by trusting that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that there he paid the penalty for your sins as a substitute for you. And it's only on the basis of His righteousness, not your righteousness, His righteousness that you are saved. And therefore, you and I have nothing to do with our salvation. Jesus Christ did it all. All that is left for us to do is to accept that payment as a free gift, to rely, to depend, to trust in Him and Him alone for that salvation. 
Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.